Welcome to the Dimensions book series by K. Arwen. An extraordinary tale of an inner journey and a battle of good against evil. In this podcast, the heroine Kaya tells her own story from book one, The Awakening. Our journey begins on the Scottish Isle of Skye. Parallel realities interconnect and interweave. Step in and enter Dimensions. decide to go to the cafe. It's a pretty rough night last night with meeting that creature that called itself despair. I've been thinking a lot about it and I just can't help think it's some kind of star being or something. I'm not sure but trying to work it all out sitting in Wilma's cottage this morning, well it just wasn't working so I thought I'll go and see the real deal and go and have a coffee with Wilma herself. So I walk into the cafe and her cheery face meets me from across the counter. Hi, come for some breakfast, she says, as she places a large pile of pastries under their glass dome. What'll it be? Oh, just coffee, thanks, I reply. I wait for her to make the soya cappuccino and then sit on one of the chairs near to the counter to drink it. I've been thinking about those faces, Wilma, the ones that you saw yesterday. Wilma shudders and mutters under her breath about their unholy nature. Ah, are they part of the history of Scotland like help is? I mean, is there a link to the past? I ask. She pauses from polishing the glass-fronted counter and thinks about my question. No, at least not one that's widely spoken of, although I vaguely remember my grandmother speaking of something similar. She used to tell us Barnes to be happy and smile, else the shadow men, they would get us. Not exactly the right thing to say to a child if you want to cheer them up, is it? She chuckles, shaking her head. I mean, frightening them half to death. I laugh. No, perhaps not. Do you think that's what I saw? Wilma said. I mean, the shadow men that my grandmother used to speak about. Well, it could be, couldn't it? I reply, sipping my hot coffee. I mean, it would make sense if your grandmother said they were drawn to you if you were angry or unhappy or, or cross. Wilma nods thoughtfully. Yeah, she agrees, but why now? Well, why the noise from the phones and things? I mean, it's like I said yesterday, something's going on, Wilma, and I want to get to the bottom of it. 
The door of the cafe opens and a group of tourists enter. Wilma greets them and sets about taking their orders. I retreat and pick up the local paper that's on a table nearby and I flick through it mindlessly. Then a particular article catches my attention. It describes a a local concern for the vandalising of the forestry vehicles that have been stationed in the forest not far from Wilma's cottage. It's a picture that draws my attention. It's a photograph showing a forest ranger standing on a section of the forest track near to one of the damaged vehicles. A simple enough image, it would seem, but as I look at it, my blood runs cold. Half hidden in the trees, I can see what looks like a black cube structure. At first, it can sort of be overlooked like a shadow or some trick of the light. And yet, what shadow in a forest has straight perpendicular sides and right angles like that? I look at it more closely. Then making up my mind, I leave the paper on the table and wave goodbye to Wilma and leave the cafe. I grab the dog leads from inside the van door. Come on, you two, we're going for a run. The dogs begin talking in a mixture of whines and barks. Shush, for goodness sake, anyone would think you never go out and you run nearly seven kilometres a day, I tell them. The dogs don't appear to take any notice though and leap around the van, dancing around my feet, threatening to trip me up. Enough! Wait! Sit! The effect is instantaneous. Both dogs sit down begrudgingly and look at me through doleful eyes. You're such a pair of humbugs, I say. Come on then, this way. We run a mile along the lane from the cafe and enter into the forest through one of the forest gates. The track's wide and it's pleasant to run along. And the first section runs alongside the burn, which today is running like a torrent with the rainwater draining off the mountains. I run past where the track splits and then, taking the right turn off, I go to where the picture had been taken for the paper. Straight away, I start to feel really uneasy. I've got this distinct feeling that I shouldn't be here and all my instincts are starting to scream objections, my head kicking in, reminding me that no one knows I'm here, I'm female and that I'm all alone in the forest. I'll be quiet, I tell myself, reminding myself that this track will eventually lead right through the forest and out to the other end near the village where Wilma's house was situated. So in effect, I'm kind of running home, albeit a long way round. I carry on running, partially because I don't want to slow down in case of what might happen if I do. There's kind of something reassuring about the feeling of running. And then I catch something out the corner of my eye. A distinct black, muscular-looking being, twice the height of a man and three times as wide. I feel a surge of panic and I wish I'd listened to my gut feelings. This cube thing is actually alive, I realise, and is nothing short of sinister. I keep running and I turn a corner 
and there it is again in the trees. How come it got there so quickly? I keep running, but turning my head, I, I try to look behind me to see it, but nothing's there, it's gone. How can that be? I keep up my pace and turn the last corner onto the half-mile straight that leads to the track. That joins up to the one where I've the, out of the forest. And then the being's there again. It must be nearly eight feet high. I can see it clearly out the corner of my eyes now. It's broad and highly toned muscular body. And that's what gave it the cuboid look from a distance. As I glance across my shoulder, it seems to disappear again. It must be able to cloak itself. A cold terror sweeps through my body. This being appears to be stalking me and I don't like it one bit. Keep running, keep running, I tell myself. Maybe I'm just spooked and it's all my imagination. But my dogs clearly are telling me that I'm not imagining anything. They both keep running but they keep looking back whining in fear. I pick up the pace along a half mile straight but the dogs keep looking back over their shoulders. You see it too then, I pant. Well come on girls, we've got to outrun it. I sprint the last section of the straight and turn down another track that leads out of the forest. The being is in pursuit. I can feel it gaining on me. Keep your cool, I tell myself. Keep your cool. I focus on my breathing and imagine the oxygen flowing to my muscles, feeding them with energy. My intuition gives me the image of water and instinctively I leave the track and run through the trees towards the shoreline. I race to the water without stopping and wade out as fast as I can, the dogs leaping through the water behind me until they have to swim. Only then I slow my pace and I wade out further until I'm swimming with them. Now the distinct air of lightness and the threat appears to subside. Whatever that being has been, it it doesn't seem to like water, or at least it doesn't want to get in the water. And I can sense it's gone. I get back into the van in the cafe car park and let the dogs jump in through the side door, and they lie down, grateful for the rest. I sit down on the floor of the van with them, giving them some fuss. What the hell was that? Whatever it was, it sabotaged the forest machines to keep the people away. But but why? I sit gazing across at the cafe absent-mindedly, lost in my thoughts. And then I become aware of the familiar squealing noise starting again. The cafe is not particularly busy. There's only one or two other cars in the car park. Yet the noise seems to carry across from the cafe to my van. A couple leave clearly arguing about something and I watch them bemused. They seem oblivious to the fact that they're in public and they begin to shout and be vile to each other and then the air around them seems to change. I watch as the faces start to appear. Horrible menacing faces that seem to swoop out of thin air and swoop towards the couple can only be the shadow men. More people start to come out from the cafe and accost the the couple for causing a disturbance and then the shadow men seem to turn on them too, swooping across and through them, feeding and draining their energy and the people seem to become more hostile and bad-tempered as they do. 
And then even more shadow men appear. I think of Wilma. Where is she? And is she all right? I I take a deep breath and getting out of the van, I, I cross the car park. The shadow men start to come towards me as well. I feel my energies plummet as prickles of fear start to run down my spine. The shadow men move closer. Oh, go away, I command and instinctively move my hands in the shape of a symbol. The shadow men's faces fall and they melt back into the air. I enter the cafe and I see Wilma standing at the rear of the counter looking a bit of a daze. I draw the symbol again, on purpose this time, and breathing out I imagine it filling the cafe with bright light. Strangely enough, the energy inside the cafe seems to change and Wilma starts to relax and smile. Are you okay? I ask, crossing to the counter. I'm good, it's just them, Wilma says, indicating the car park where the shadow men are still swarming around the people. I draw the symbol again and this time send it out across the car park. The shadow men vanish. Well, that worked a treat, Wilma said in relief. You best teach me how to do that. Where did you learn it? Why, Kaya, you're wet through. I grin. Yeah, the dogs and I went for a run in the forest and, well, I got spooked and swam back, she said. I say, not wanting to tell Wilma the entire story and worry her. Wilma looks at me thoughtfully. There's more to you than meets the eye, Kaya, that's for sure, she says, turning to the coffee machine. Hot coffee to warm up then. And then I'm going to send you off home to put on some dry clothes. 18th century Scotland. I'm staying. But Meg... They were standing in the doorway of Meg's cottage by the shore. The villagers had been packing for a while now and most of them had already left. There was now only two more carts to go, and one of which was to take Owen. He had come to collect Meg and her belongings in readiness to leave the village the next day. My mind is made up, Owen. I'm going to stay with Morag, and I'll travel with her to her cousins on the mainland. I'll see her settled, and then I'll try and find a ship and follow you to Canada. Owen looked at her determined face, set in resolve at her decision. How will you find me? He paused and looked at her intensely. Meg, I can't bear the thought of never seeing you again. Meg fell into his arms, tears streaming down her face. I can't leave her, Owen. She's frail and sick and to see her destroyed is unbearable. The village and the people here have been all that she's ever known. It's all so cruel and so unnecessary. Aye, but money talks, Meg, what can I say? These people appear to have no thought for the locals. We're inconvenient. Well, at least I can see Morag settled. I mean, if I, we, know that she's settled, then at least we can start our life over over together at, at peace. If we just leave here and go... I could never truly be settled. I'd be haunted by thoughts about where she was and, well, if she ever found peace, I know I would. Yes, replied Owen. 
You're a beautiful woman, Meg, inside and out. He paused, his voice becoming hoarse with emotion and holding back the tears that threatened to overcome him. He looked into Meg's earnest face. God, he loved her. He so wanted to be with her. I'm mad letting her do this, he thought. He was silent, but Meg could read the thoughts on his face. The fears and the uncertainty. She felt them too. I mean, really, how could she possibly ever find him in Canada? How was she going to even find another ship that was going to Canada? She knew, as he did, that in effect by staying, she was saying goodbye forever. Owen looked deep into Meg's eyes. Could he tell her? Should he tell her now? Should he remind her that she wasn't from the world of man and in truth this drama was not or didn't have to be hers? She could go back to the sea still if she chose. But the words stuck in his throat. He couldn't let her go. If there was any chance that she might make it to Canada, that they might eventually be together, then that was something. He clenched his fist in defiance and said nothing. Meg reached out her hands and placed them over his fist. It's all right, Owen, she said slowly, unfurling his fingers and interlacing them with hers. It's all right. We'll find each other again, no matter how long it takes. We will find each other again. I can feel it. Well, you need to take this, Meg. You'll be alone and undefended here. Owen passed Meg the sword that the landlord had given him. Meg took it silently, her hand seeming tiny around the engraved hilt. Then Owen broke. He sobbed from the depths of his soul and held her close. I can't hold you close enough, Meg, he said, kissing her hair. I just can't hold you close enough. His voice trailed away as he was overcome with grief. They embraced for the moment, lost in their despair. Modern Day The great dragon sighed and lowered its head, resting it on its front feet. The chains that tied it were causing deep cuts in its neck and legs, and the wounds, although no longer bleeding, were red raw. It had long given up trying to break free from the chains. Each time it had done so, the boxes which were secured to each of the chains would be turned on and an electric fire would be sent down the chains into his body. And as that happened, the shadow men would swarm round him, taunting him and twisting his mind. The dragon had become resolved to its captivity, at least for the time being. A skinwalker approached. We will break you, it said. The dragon opened an eye and regarded the skinwalker. We will break you. Why not give up now and save yourself a lot of pain? You've no way of escape. It's just a matter of time. The dragon said nothing, but just stared back. At the man? No. The thing that spoke to him was not a man. 
The skinwalker was one of those things that the dragon adored. It was a non-entity, a no-life. And the dragon was repulsed by things that disrespected nature, that were detached from life and from the flow of emergence. This thing that was speaking to him was just that. It was alienated from anything natural and it had succumbed to its own hellish state and was now enslaved by the depths of chaos and darkness. The dragon could smell it. The thing smelt rank. It smelt of fear and despair and anger and hate. It had no conscience or remorse and its stench was of rotting, festering flesh. I could eat you, the dragon thought, but I'll not sink to such a level. And it let out a billow of hot smoke. The skinwalker retreated. You will submit. The Matrix Lord demands it. The dragon looked back at him. How small you are and how contracted, pitiful. It closed its eye and placed his focus out of the cave, sending his awareness along the energy channels of Earth, along the ley lines. And instantly it became aware of the energy that the cube collectors were transmitting. He felt the hatred and the ego of man growing like a disease, creating a foul energy that tortured both the land and the people themselves. The dragon let out another breath and felt through this stagnant energy, through this noise. He felt further along the ley lines to his fellow brothers and sisters. He was suddenly connected and aware of an expansive light that cradled the entire planet, that held and supported life. It's not too late, the other dragon said. The faint whispers drifted through the dragon's mind like a warm breeze. There's hope. The dragon breathed in the message and let its body relax. The skinwalker watched and read it as a sign of the dragon's submission. Satisfied, he went to report that the dragon was breaking. The dragon, however, focused on the rhythm of the planet, of her mountains, oceans and rivers, and all the creatures that resided there, that were living, breathing and flowing. The dragon knew that it was only a matter of time before things changed. He could wait. Eighteenth century Scotland. Meg stood in the doorway and looked around at Morag's cottage in dismay. Everything was neat and tidy. Every item looked as if it had been washed and put down deliberately, and there was no sign of Morag herself. A chill of dread crept through her and in Meg's mind she heard the whisperings of voices warning her that something terrible had happened. Taking a deep breath and forcing herself to be calm, Meg walked further into the room. Now that she was inside, she could see that her first impression had been correct. 
every surface and every item was newly polished and positioned carefully in its place. She could almost see Morag thoughtfully giving her attention to her possessions, picking each item up, recollecting memories that were associated with it and then polishing or cleaning it with love, replacing it where she'd got it from and moving on to the next object. Meg didn't like the implications. Morag, she called, but there was no reply. One, perhaps Morag had gone out for an innocent walk, but somehow Meg knew that what she had discovered had more sinister implications. She continued her search and walked from the kitchen into the sitting room, and here it was the same. Everything was clean and neat. Even the needlework that Morag was working on looked to be deliberately arranged in the basket. The threads were lined up parallel as if somebody had sat and brushed them into place. It was all too perfect. Meg looked at the empty fireplace with its wooden mantelpiece and then she saw the note. She felt sick as she picked it up and opened the yellow, the yellowed piece of paper. On it, she noticed Morag's unmistakably shaky and uneven writing, and reluctantly, she began to read. Since Owen has gone, I feel I have nothing left. I cannot join him and the others. I feel I've no purpose or value. I feel defeated, broken and hollow like a a piece of driftwood on a beach. I don't wish to be a burden to anyone. I have my dignity. I no longer belong here. I've tried my best for those I love, for Meribeth, but to no avail. I feel I, I need to melt away into the mist like some sea spectre. Maybe... People will forget me in my existence. I appear to have no choice. I'm so clouded by my deep my deep pain and a longing for life that I can never have. It feels harsh and cruel that I can't see a way forward and the way is blocked. Darkness is all around me. The shadows breathe down my spine and they mock and plague. And sleep well. Sleep eludes me. I'm decided. I shall melt into the mist. Don't look for me, but remember me for who I was to you. With love and blessings for always, Morag. Meg felt weak and stumbling forward leant against the hearth for support. Oh, Morag, she whispered, with tears rolling down her face. Why? Yet in her heart she understood. She could understand how Morag's entire world had fallen apart. How could she leave on the boats for Canada? And yet she'd seen everyone else go, knowing that she would never follow and that she would never see the people she loved again. Yes, Meg understood. But where could Morag have gone? She looked down again at the letter and her eyes caught the words, Sea Spectre. Vomit rose in her throat and she knew 
Morag had gone to the water. She had taken herself to be with the sea kelpies that she'd spoke so much of. Meg placed the letter back on the mantel shelf and, leaving the cottage, she gently closed the door behind her. She placed her hand against the door, remembering all the time she had come here to see Morag, and from her heart she sent love to her spirit in thanks and remembrance. Goodbye, Morag, she whispered. Find peace, wherever you are. Three days later, a fisherman found Morag's body. It had been swept by the sea current across the loch and had washed up onto some rocks on the furthest shore. It lay among the seaweed as though on a bed of golden brown. The fisherman told the tale of discovering her lifeless form. It was, he said, as though she were sleeping. And accompanying her on her bed of seaweed were three seals who sang a chorus in their seal voices as he lifted, lifted her body into his fishing boat to take Morag home. Thank you for listening. And so that you don't miss an episode of Kaya's journey from Dimensions the Awakening, then please follow the podcast K. Arwin Dimensions the Book Series. And for more information on the author, check out kayamia.co.uk. Until next time, I leave you with some Atlantean light language. Oh, yeah.